It was really a joy to see all of you singing. Each one his distinct personality, and each one somehow angelic. I know that you aren't perfect because you still have ego, but you have sattvic egos, and that means egos that are turned to God. I'm very touched. I wanted to do one thing before I begin my questions and answers, and that is read a preface that I've written for Patanjali, which I haven't sent out. It's uh, can we do something about this thing here? <laughs> I'm supposed to read questions, and I've got to have this big thing in the way. Thank you. <laughs> Blind belief, anathema to religion. Patanjali's Yoga Sutras are a stirring cry to go beyond religious dogmas and untested beliefs. Its basic message is, here are practices that can be tested and proved. You can find out for yourself who and what God is. Paramahansa Yogananda declared that in future the religion of mankind would be the realization of the universal self Patanjali offers a way to attain this high, self, high state. In the past, and to a large extent even today, religion has been equated with systems of belief. It has been assumed that God cannot be known, and that, therefore, the closest we can ever come to him is through our own opinions. People have even fought in defense of their opinions. Muslims have gone to the extent of killing in their zeal to force conversion, conversion to their own opinions. Human folly can hardly rise higher than to promise sensual delights in heaven to whoever sacrifices his earthly body while trying to force such conversions. Religion offers us attainment of the highest that is in us, and then boxes us in with threats of punishment, sectarianism, and intolerance. Patanjali offers all of us much higher attainments, and then fills our minds with forgiveness, genuine, all-embracing love and understanding. He brings much more than a fresh breath of truth. He brings us a new reality, filled with a fresh air of true hope for a perfect future. Okay. Kalyani, have you? I mean, are any of you missed this up here? <laughs> well, somehow you left it out. 
Anyway, Kent White asked two important questions. One was something that I had said <clears throat> years ago about um, an experience I had in the Holy Land. I am not sure whether this is the one to which he refer refers, but I cannot think of another. It was that when I was at Capernaum, I was with a bunch of tourists and, and uh, so on, but I just paused a moment and I tried to meditate and I sort of became like a spiritual archaeologist digging down through layers of civilization to suddenly I came to the time when Jesus and his disciples were there and I could actually feel the joy and their joy in singing to God and I, uh, that was a wonderful experience for me. <coughs> the other question he asked me was about walking meditation. I talked about that once, and he wanted me to explain it. I think it's a worth thing to share with you. When you take a walk, try to not have nobody to talk to. Be alone and just feel the energy walking, using your legs. Feel the energy coming into your lungs. Feel your arms using that same energy. And then be aware of all the sounds around you so that if a car honks its horn in the distance, think of it as God talking to you. What have you got to say to me through this horn? If a dog barks, ask yourself, what are you trying to tell me? In other words, feel that all nature is relating to you, and you are relating to it, and you are relating to God in all those forms. I have found great inspiration in doing these walking meditations and come home very inspired. So now let's come to questions that are written. Could you please explain the difference between karma, bhakti, jnana, and raja yoga. <laughs> and what is the safest path? Well, I can do it briefly, but I would like to start by saying that they're all safe. <laughs> so don't be afraid. Bhakti is a devotion. And without devotion, Swami Sarukteshwar, who was a... a avatar of wisdom, he himself said that until you have awakened the heart's natural love, there will be, uh, you can't take one step toward God. It's like living next door to a famous restaurant, and you know the menu, and you know the chefs, and you know that all of it is excellent, but you aren't hungry, <laughs> so you won't go in. <clears throat> Devotion is being hungry for God. And you can have be, be hungry for truth, you can be hungry for um, wisdom and understanding, but mainly it's a heart quality. And the heart is the most important thing. In fact, it's the essence of consciousness. People talk about um, someday, perhaps, computers will be 
campaigning for computer rights. This is absolutely ridiculous. Computers can't be intelligent enough to do anything except that they're programmed to do it. If you were to really go for a consciousness, go to the worm. A worm is conscious and it's self-conscious. You cannot make a computer either conscious or self-conscious. You prick a worm with a pin and it wriggles away. You can't get simpler than that. You don't need a complex computer. We make all too much ado about our brains and our intelligence. Intelligence is not the key to your existence. Feeling is. The ability to feel. That's why Patanjali says, Yoga is the neutralization of the vortices of feeling in the heart. And these are the two things that we must work to overcome and to raise to a higher octave. Our feeling, we, must, we know that, and this is a point Master brought out beautifully, everybody in the world is seeking happiness. But the trouble is they seek it on lower octaves. Criminals will seek it as a revenge. They'll think, ha ha, I really got him, didn't I? And they'll think they're happy with that, but they aren't. They think they're happy getting even, but they aren't. And gradually we go through many, many incarnations until we understand where happiness truly comes from. It comes from inside. And happiness in its highest octave is bliss. We were all made from that bliss, Satchitananda. And that is why we all have this instinctive and in inevitable, ineluctable desire for happiness. We really are looking for bliss. All of us are looking for God, but we don't know it. So bhakti yoga is stirring up the heart's feelings. The trouble with bhakti yoga is often people get emotional with it. And of course, emotion takes you downward into the senses. So if you want to call that a danger, okay. Jnana yoga, uh, karma yoga is acting for God. That's what my life has been mostly. I've spent my whole life trying to finish my guru's work. And because it has been for my guru, he has filled me with his consciousness. But uh, it comes from not thinking of self. The Bhagavad Gita is essentially, above all, a scripture of karma yoga, action without desire for the fruits of action. When you do karma yoga, you must not want anything for yourself. It's only to give, and that dissolves your ego in a larger reality. All of these things have the purpose of dissolving the ego in that broader reality. Jnana yoga is wisdom. That's a harder path. But I have to admit that was the path I chose. I went through reason. I didn't believe in God. And I tried to find truth through astronomy, through politics, through this thing and that thing. Finally, I remember this long walk I took, and I've told a number of you, and I won't go into it at length this time, but I took this long walk out into the, into the night, and I asked myself, if there's a God, 
what must he be? And I thought, well, I'm consciously asking this question. He must be consciousness. And therefore, the goal of life has to be to tune ourselves to his consciousness. And it was that realization that made me seek God. But Gana Yoga, if it's used right, is always to try to understand the deeper message behind everything. And that was what I was doing. Now I go more by bhakti. By bhakti. And Raja Yoga is a combination of all three, and then using the energy in the body, the path of Patanjali, in fact. That is Raja Yoga. Raja Yoga means the yoga, it's a kingly yoga, the highest yoga, where all the contributory streams of yogas meet in the spine and to raise your consciousness to the infinite. How to develop devotion? Well, <clears throat> the main thing is to concentrate in the heart. The trouble with devotion is it can take you down or upward. I remember I said to, to Ananda Mohima in India that I was feeling a great clean, cleanness in my heart. And she said, you have to take care now. Don't let the energy go downward. And I realized in time that it can go downward. So that energy, when you feel it in the heart, concentrate here, it's a good thing to do. But direct that energy up to this point. Otherwise, it can plummet. And uh, uh, bhakti yogis often fall because of that. So direct your energy to this point. And this is the highest center to concentrate in. But it's good to concentrate in the heart, especially to awaken the heart's feelings. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, it talks of thinking of the heart as a lotus. And then feel that lotus turning all its petals up toward the brain. And then direct that energy upward toward the brain. These are ways to develop devotion. Another very important way is chanting. Master said chanting is half the battle. I used to chant for hours a day. And I found it was very helpful. One thing that helps to develop devotion is to get rid of devotion to yourself. <laughs> Humility is very important. Understanding that he is everything. Think of everything that you want in life and think God is my reason for wanting that. He is behind everything. And the more you can think that way, the more your devotion goes to him. Chanting is really important. Master's chants have been spiritualized. Chant those chants. Indian chants often don't have any meaning. Rama, Rama, Rama. And yet, somehow there's a vibration there that uplifts you. So anything that will uplift your heart, it certainly helps to think of God as not an abstraction. God is an abstraction. But God has also manifested himself in your form, my form, all forms. And so Master, in Autobiography of a Yogi, writes of when sometimes, twice on two occasions especially, 
the Divine Mother came to him and said, Always have I loved you, always shall I love thee. And to think of the Divine Mother is, to me, a very nice way of worshiping God. God is neither mother nor father, both mother and father. It's perfectly legitimate to think of God as having a form. But Master said, always think that in those eyes that you're visualizing is the consciousness of infinity. Don't make it a personal kind of thing. Make it something that will lead you toward infinity. The importance, what is the importance of environment on the spiritual path? Master said it's extremely important. Environment is stronger than willpower, he said. It's almost impossible to have your half hour of meditation in the evening and then you go up and be with your drinking buddies. <laughs> they will pull you down. Make sure that your friends are worthy, not just because you like them. You can like people who are not worthy. Like them because they inspire you and help to raise your consciousness. Even where you eat is important. When you eat, you're in a taking mode. Thus, when you're in a, in a restaurant, you're in heterogeneous vibrations. And the vibrations of others, when you're eating, you're taking in, and you'll be taking in those vibrations also. Be sure if you go out to eat with people, go out with friends, go out with spiritual friends, people with whom they're sort of your bodyguard. Don't go into the city without a bodyguard. I don't mean somebody with a gun. <clears throat> I mean somebody who also loves God and who can share with you divine vibrations. Company and environment are very important. You know, the vibrations of thoughts in places become very strong. I've noticed this. I mentioned that experience in Israel. But I've noticed this many times when I travel, that I can feel the vibrations of the people. And you can feel many generations of those vibrations. Make it a point to go to places that inspire. Make it a point especially to meditate in places that inspire. That is to say, in your own home, have a little section of your bedroom if you can't have a separate meditation room. And do nothing there but meditate. Don't allow casual conversation. But as you do so, over a few months you will find a vibration that makes you want to meditate the moment you sit down there. If you meditate in the dining room, it won't be quite the same thing. They meditate on your stomach. <laughs> but it's true. I remember when I was in college, I took a job one night as a babysitter, hoping that it would en enable me to study for an exam. <laughs> and when I got the chil children to bed, I picked up the book and tried to read, and I just couldn't. And I looked around me, there were no books, only magazines. The people themselves were very superficial. 
I could not do my what I intended to do that evening, study for this exam. Go to places that are harmonious with what you want to do, and avoid like the plague places that could pull you down. Go, don't go into the bars. I remember I had to go into a bar one time to go to the restroom. I really felt attacked. I remember one time I had to go through the nightclub district of Los Angeles, of, of San Francisco to try to find somebody who would sing a song of mine. I never found him, it never happened, but that was my thought. But I could feel, before I went, because I knew I was going into a very worldly environment, I sang in my meditation room, Sri Ram, Jai Ram, Jai Jai Ram, Om, Sri Ram, Jai Ram, Jai Jai Ram, Om. And I sang that all the time in my mind as I was going through this. And I could really feel it was as if magnets were trying to pull me into these nightclubs. I resisted it, but I could feel that power. This world has power, and the darkness of this world has power. Satan has power. It's important to mix with spiritual people it's important, don't try to convert people who are not on the path and who are not inclined to the path. If you do, be sure you're very strong in yourself first. Because everybody exudes a magnetism. There are two way, three ways especially that this magnetism is transferred. One is through the handshake. With a handshake, you have two horseshoe magnets, the, the legs, and the head and the arms. And the other is the eyes. Don't look into the eyes of worldly people. Some people are very strong in their negativity, and they can affect you harmfully. So don't think that, oh, it's just in the mind, because that's exactly where it is, and that's exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> Remember, Try to be, try to, Master said, don't go anywhere without a spiritual bodyguard if you can help it. How will religion evolve in this new age? Well, I see, after all, now it's very difficult to think of God as just some being on a cloud. It's very difficult to think that if matter is not real, that energy is real. Matter is a vibration of energy. Energy is a vibration of thoughts. Thoughts are a vibration of consciousness. Everything was made from God. You were made from God. You can't get away from it. That's why you want to be happy, because he is bliss. You have that desire to experience that bliss. And so the religion of the future will no longer be based on ideas and beliefs. It will be based on experience. You will, we will not be able to avoid that deep truth that everything 
is God's consciousness. So we will no longer think of God in a sectarian way. We will no longer say he's my God and not your God. God is everybody's God. Somebody says to me, said to me the other day, what about atheists? They too, without knowing it, believe in God because they believe in happiness. And when they are happy, they're expressing a little bit of God. You can't get away from yourself. That's the one thing you can't avoid. So why not try to find out who you really are? The religion of the future will be know thyself. Know what your relationship with God is as an experience, not just a belief. Know that you can not only know God, you can be God. You are God. The only difference is between you and a saint that you have other desires. And those other desires weaken your energy. I want ice cream, I want sex, I want money, I want power, I want glory, I want fame, I want this thing and that thing. And I want it in this form and that form and the other form. <laughs> and so you have these thousands of little vortices, vrittis, that pull you downward and keep the stream of consciousness from going upward. That is the supreme power of Kriya Yoga, that it helps to loosen all those vrittis, all those whirlpools in the spine, and direct everything upward toward God. When you find God, you will find that that is what you are too. Your destiny in life is not just going to heaven. Your destiny in life is to merge in God to become one with God. It will take time, probably, for at least one or two of you, let me know. <laughs> but as soon as you've gotten rid of all your desires, all your self-importance, all your thought of ego, as soon as you've gotten rid of every little vritti of likes and dislikes and attachments and aversions, you'll find that this is what you've always been. People are afraid of losing themselves. They don't realize that they don't lose anything. In the, in the Bible, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says that killing these enemies, you, they won't even die. And people think this is hypocrisy, but the truth is that when you get rid of your enemy of greed or doubt or ambition or all these things, they, it's the same energy it's just directed into, <clears throat> into a higher octave. Instead of anger, you feel kindness. Instead of lust, you feel joy and love. And so on upward. Every negative quality has its positive opposite. And you will find that when that negative quality has been destroyed, you've destroyed nothing except the darkness in your own self. And you'll become, and that is what happens on the path. As people meditate, they become more and more free, more and more joyful. You don't really have to accomplish anything. All you have to do is get rid of these obstacles to your own true happiness. And when you reach that state, and this is what will, you have no choice in the matter. You have to be liberated sooner or later because that's the goal and the destiny of life. 
It may take a few days of Brahma. It may take a few billion or trillion years or lifetimes. Or it may not. You're here already. One time somebody said to Master, I don't think I have very good karma, Master. And he said, remember this. It takes very, very, very good karma even to want to know God. Don't think that God is pleased if you worship him as this form or that form or the other form. You don't have to please God. Just love him. He's not out to judge you for anything. He just is your father and mother, and he wants you. And the only thing he doesn't have, he has the whole universe, but he doesn't have your love. And that is the one thing he wants. It's the one gift you can give him. So religion in the new age will evolve toward realization, toward the practice of yoga, yes, because it's a technique that will help you to reach that. But above all, as Draupadi one time, Krishna said to her, why don't you practice yoga? And she said, I'd love to, Master, but I can't take my mind away from you long enough to do so. And he didn't say anything. <laughs> because that's the highest yoga of all, just to love God. And all the techniques are only intended to help direct your energy upward so that you can love him more deeply. So the religion of the New Age will not be Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on. It will be that one true self, which is you, and your union with him, and how to achieve that union. Could you please share a few techniques to overcome the ego? Well, that's a good one. <laughs> The one thing we all have to overcome is his ego. Let me tell you, though, a secret. You cannot destroy this self. You cannot. Because even once you merge in God, there will still be that memory of having been Joe Blow or Gene Green or whatever it might be. There will always be that memory of having passed through these incarnations and then become him. That memory will never be lost. So that if, when you become a saint and a devotee prays to you and you come to him, it won't be God in your form, except to this extent. It will be you who are God, but remembering that form and you'll be able to come yourself in that form to that devotee. So Jesus Christ, he was one with God, but it was he. he. He was not just the Son of God. He was one who had gone through many, many incarnations, who knew what it is to stumble in delusion, who knew what it is to suffer and be blind, and who had worked his way out of that delusion and finally achieved freedom. The difference between a free soul and an avatar is simply this, that an avatar is a free soul 
who of his own free will, out of compassion for humanity, comes back. Most souls, when they've reached that point, they just say, thank heaven, that's it. They have no desire to come back. But those few who do, they come with the power of God. An ascending master can only free a few people. You must free at least six others before you can attain final liberation. There were three yogis who were discovered by in my guru's father's time underneath a lake, and the, the engineers <clears throat> estimated they must have been there at least 300 years in Samandhi. And when they brought them out, the Maharaja applied hot pokers to them and forced them back to consciousness. And they said, because you did this cruelty, your whole family will suffer. And they, oh, the whole family died. But my guru said it was the Divine Mother who wanted them to be found, who wanted to prevent them from finding freedom selfishly only for themselves. It's a divine law that you must find other, help others before you can attain that freedom. But once you do attain it, then you can free six others or a handful. But an avatar can free any number of people. That is why Jesus Christ and Buddha and Krishna and Yogananda and other great avatars, they have a very great blessing that they bring, that they can free so many people. They have to do it through their disciples, but it's their power that does it. So that lunk as I am, as Master's disciple, if I'm in tune with him, I can help to free you. But without that freedom, Master told me personally that you must meet the Guru at least once in the physical body. That means that all those poor slugs like you who never got to meet him, are you out of luck? Not at all. It has to be through instruments. And I have to be that instrument, and others will be that instrument, and are that instrument. I don't limit it to myself. But it is the truth that that power is handed on. An avatar can hand it on down through countless generations. So this is a very great blessing to have drawn an avatar. Somebody asked the question, I don't love Yogananda, I love Jesus. Fine. Jesus, in fact, is one of our gurus, but it wouldn't matter if he wasn't. He is an avatar. Love God in that form, and he will come. And God will come to you in that form. So, techniques for overcoming the ego. One is never to take yourself seriously. Don't ever boast. Don't say, well, I'm no good, I can't do it, it's hopeless. Humility is not self-abasement. It's self-forgetfulness. When you can reach the point where you don't say anymore, I did that, I did that, I did that. I remember I was in a bamboo shop and the owner of the shop was talking about her niece who was setting up a new shop down the street. And she said, I'm proud of that girl. Don't be proud of your children. Don't be proud of your lineage. One of the great 
Baines on the spiritual path is pride of pedigree, proud of where you were born, proud of being an American, proud of being born into a, a known family, proud of having George Washington as your relative, proud of all these reasons, proud of being good at an artist or whatever you do. It's nothing. Whatever you do, it's nothing. God can do more through you than you can through yourself. I know that once I gave a lecture in Hollywood and the lady, a lady afterwards complimented me on my talk and I said to her sincerely, God is the doer. She said, really? <laughs> Meaning I knew it was good, I didn't know it was that good. <laughs> well, that wasn't how I meant it. Feel that God is doing everything through you. Even when you mis make a mistake, feel that God made this mistake through me. It'll be easier for him to do right through you if you have that consciousness. So never say I'm a sinner. That is not humility. That is the worst sin before God to call yourself a sinner. Say rather that he is the doer and even... If you give your mistakes to him and your sins to him, he will be able to correct them. He will be able to make you sinless. So remember, the most important thing is to feel that God is acting through you, breathing through you, walking through you, dreaming through you, eating through you. These are very important things. When people praise you, you can thank them. You don't want to insult them. But always give the credit where it's due. Say that God did it. And if they want to blame you, thank them. Because it's good to have a little set down in your ego. I was at a dinner which I had, was paying for with a group of famous people. And they were talking to each other and ignoring me. Because after all, I wasn't on the lecture circuit. But the, the lecture, the conference was on communities. I was the only one who had started a successful community, but they ignored me. I was absolutely blissful. It was so nice to be unimportant. Think of your own unimportance before God. I don't mean to put yourself down. Just say, who am I before him? And any time people insult you. They used to go to duels over this. What a ridiculous thing to defend your honor by killing somebody because you're a better swordsman. I enjoyed very much an American who was challenged to a duel by a famous duelist in France, and he got to choose the weapons, so he chose apple pie at ten paces. <laughs> <clears throat> why, why let people force you to defend your honor? Just say, I have no honor. You'll find that if you can do that, if you can talk to people without emphasizing your importance in any way, being grateful for anything that makes you seem unimportant, these things are great helps. I have worked on this. When I came to Master, I had a certain pride in my intelligence. I am intelligent, and... I took pride in it. That was the fault. It's not wrong to know that you can do something. It's wrong to take pride in it. And I remember one night 
I was sitting in meditation in my meditation room, and you can you sometimes you have to do violence with yourself, and I just decided it was time to look at this pride of my intelligence, and look at it squarely and see it for what it is. Just nonsense. And I said, I'm tired of you. Get out. And I spoke with all the vigor of willpower that I had. And I came out of that meditation feeling free. And I saw a master over the tennis course looking over Los Angeles. And I knelt for his blessing. And he touched me on the forehead. And he said, very good. And I've never had that problem again. If you very forcefully get sick of yourself for being so stupid, <laughs> then you can recognize reality. I don't have to say that I'm stupid. I'm not. But I don't have to take pride in being intelligent. There's no need to it. That is a sign of stupidity. <laughs> so remember, God in everything is the true doer. What is the most important message that Yogananda brought to the West? And how do you think his techniques will affect the world today? I think the most important message he brought was to show the underlying unity between Christianity and the Hinduism of the Bhagavad Gita. They're the same teaching to the extent that Christian missionaries, when they went to India and heard and read the Bhagavad Gita, were convinced that Krishna had borrowed it from Jesus. <laughs> but nobody borrows truth. Truth just is. And so the most important thing besides that that he brought was Kriya Yoga and the techniques that will help us to attune ourselves to that reality to get rid of the ego, to convince us who we really are, children of God, and in fact, manifestations of God himself. His, I remember I was talking, because SRF, as all of you know, sued me for imitating masters, using master's word and image and likeness and so on. And I said at that meeting that we had in Fresno, Yogananda could not have come. He said, Yogananda, Yogananda said that self-realization would be the religion of the future. He cannot have meant Self-Realization Fellowship, Inc. <laughs> Daya said, that's your opinion. Well, it is my opinion indeed, and I'm very sorry that it was her opinion. It showed that she didn't understand anything of his teachings. And I think that this teaching of the universality of religion, that God is everywhere and in everyone, this is the greatest thing he brought. What is Ananda's role in Master's mission to the world? Well, let me tell you frankly. Master said to me many times, you have a great work to do. He said to me one time, of the men disciples, all have disappointed me except St. Lynn, and you mustn't disappoint me. And that was the strength with which he talked. And I knew what he meant. He didn't mean that the men had disappointed him spiritually, but all the men came thinking of their own realization. 
He had a worldwide mission to fulfill. That's why he told us that he was William the Conqueror, because he wanted us to understand this is a worldwide mission. It's not just a little monastery. SRF women have not understood that. I am the only disciple out of all those disciples who has understood this truth. And I say it without ego, but with absolute conviction. And he wanted me to do something. That's why he had me kicked out of SRF. I could never have done it under them. I had to be on my own. I had to have the freedom to express his truth as I understood it. But as I understood it, I believe he meant it. He spent many, many hours in private with me, teaching these teachings, going over their subtlest points. I would ask him questions he would answer. He, one time, well, I don't say one time, many times, he showed that he had faith in me to continue his mission. And I believe that Ananda's purpose is not just <clears throat> an offshoot of SRF. Ananda has taken over Master's mission. This is what Master wanted, communities, love all for, of all people, for in all people for God, tolerance, kindness. There's no tolerance in that organization. They have nothing but intolerance. I'm being serious, and if I'm wrong, I hope I'm corrected. You can correct me. God can correct me, but that is my firm opinion. So, the most important message, I think, his teachings will affect the whole world. He said self-realization <clears throat> has come to awaken the thought of God in all people. Not Self-Realization Fellowship, Inc. The concept of realizing that you are that truth. What is Ananda's role? Well, I've said that. Can you explain the underlying unity between the main scriptures, the Bible, the Gita, and so on? The main unity is that they told people to find God. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And the Pharisees wanted to stone him for what they called blasphemy. And his answer was, Didn't your, don't your own scriptures say that ye are gods? He said, What I have done ye must do, and even greater things, for I go to my Father. He, he didn't come to make us subjective to him. He came, us, came to teach us how to become Christ-like, how to become like him. He came to show us on how we, too, are sons of God. Jesus the man is not uniquely the son of God. Christ is uniquely the son of God. Because Christ is that consciousness. Okay, here is how it is. The Spirit, when it created the universe created waves on its surface, vibration. That vibration of Om is the Holy Ghost, the Word. In the beginning is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that Word is the vibration of the universe, of creation itself. But there could not be a separation between the universe and God. 
God manifested the universe. And so in every single atom of space, there is a reflection of the perfect spirit beyond space. That reflection is the Christ. Jesus was the Christ. It wasn't his last name. Krishna was the Krishna. Yadava was his last name. The Christ is what the, what the Christian and the uh, uh, Hindu, the Bhagavad Gita, teach above everything else. Buddhism, Buddha taught that, but his followers didn't. He did, they thought that he was an atheist, and so they've taught a completely different religion. Muslim, it's almost ashamed as such a religion in its world, teaching persecution and killing in the name of God and killing in the name of conversion. You know, Muhammad was not a prophet in the sense that Krishna and Jesus were. He didn't say this is what God was. He didn't speak from God. It was an angel who inspired him. And he inspired him to kill. Is that right? There's something wrong there. I could go at length into that subject. But these two religions particularly, Master came to show the unity between them and to help people to realize that the goal of all religion and the goal of life is that we merge eventually into that which we are, the essence of God. We are God. Why was the caste system in, create, in India created, and how is it relevant in today's world? Well, the caste system originally was not a hereditary thing. When heredity came in, it became a curse. The caste system is a simple recognition that there are four types of people, and this, these are the real Races of men, not black and yellow and white and whatever. The real races of men are the fact that some people, having come up recently from an animal level, can only think with their bodies. They're only, they're only thinking of food and so on. Then they begin to realize, as they grow more sophisticated, that they have an intelligence. And so they try to use that intelligence in selfish ways, how to get for myself. And so they become Vaishyas. Vaishyas the merchant class. But they plenty of merchants are saints and plenty of non-merchants are merchants at heart. So it's not the, the, the peasant, the merchant, the soldier, the priest. These are only outward symbols. The truth of it is that when you have reached the, mer the merchant type, you're in a Vaishya. But then as you live longer, you begin to f f find that there is somebody who came to you for help and you took the trouble to help him. And you felt pretty good. And you think, I wonder why that happened. <laughs> and the next time somebody comes and you help him and you feel good, why? And so gradually we understand that Giving is better than receiving. As Jesus said, blessed, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Every word of Jesus is true. It's a great scripture, and so also is the Bhagavad Gita. And this is the Kyatira caste. 
The Catholic is somebody who is willing to give up even his life for the sake of others. They call him a soldier because a soldier typically is one who is willing to die for his country. But what it really means is one who is thinking of other people more than himself, who serves others and doesn't think of serving himself. And then gradually reach the point of understanding is when you give people wisdom and truth and joy, you're giving them more than food or money or a job. And so you become a Brahmin. But there are plenty of greedy Brahmins in India. A true Brahmin is one who thinks, how can I share God with people? How, above all, not just words, but vibrations. And then you go beyond the gunas, beyond the different castes, and you become into God. Triguna rahitam means to go beyond the three gunas. When you find yourself in that state, then you become a master. And so, how can we carry with us the joy, inspiration, and peace we feel here at the SRW back to our daily lives? And I think that's a very good question because not all of you are stuck in this village. <laughs> Some of you have to go back. Keep this joy with you. Meditate every, every, every day a few, uh, at least half an hour, an hour and a half better. The more, the better. But try to mix with other people of like mind. Try to find people in your area who share these ideals. They don't have to be members of Ananda. I'm not proselytizing. The only person I want to convert you to is your own higher self. But let it be that, that you mix with people who have that quality and shun the company of those who don't because they will pull you down. Mix with people who love God and who love him sincerely. And try to be here as often as you can. Come here as often as you can. Ananda is really a powerhouse of spiritual energy. You feel it the moment you drive onto the ground. But if you can't come here, then make such a union there with a few friends. It's very difficult to walk this path alone. Have good company. Have people with you who seek God. And we need company, we need groups like that all over. I remember there was one person who was a center of SRF in, in uh, uh, Quebec, Canada. Adan Olay, his name was. And he was very competent. And I suggested to the master, we needed help in a certain department. Why don't we bring him here? He's doing work in, in, in Canada, doing good work in Canada. Master's answer was, if he's doing good work there, why bring him here? <laughs> so, do good work wherever you are and have God with you and God-loving people with you and God will bless you. I have more questions, but I don't have time to answer them. <laughs> Thank you.